0: Lovely sunny day, Neil. How are you doing? Ah, ah Derek. Another episode of Hit
1: Stories, recording live and direct from the sunny Dublin. How is it over in the sticks?
0: Yeah, it's good. It's good. The the weather actually is a fairly fair reflection of the topic, and we're going to be talking <laughs> to Seb Falk and his book called The Light Ages. So yeah, maybe there's something in that. I mean, there's no official date, really, for the end of the Dark Ages. It's it's a little bit kind of, I suppose, it's argued over. Some people say it's the Renaissance. People say science didn't begin until the 1600s. But in reality, the term itself was coined firstly by a well-known poet, one of the original humanists, Francesco Petrarca, or commonly known as Petrarch. And uh, the Dark Ages itself is an unhelpful term in describing this period, which followed the collapse of the Western Roman Empire. And our guest today will shed some light on this ah, dark age through a Northumbrian monk, no less. And, yeah, his his life in the countryside. <laughs> Fantastic. And here he is now, it's Seb. Welcome to the Historians. Thank you for joining us this afternoon.
2: Thank you very much for having me.
0: And you
1: yeah, we're we're, we're admiring your, your bookshelf there in the background. Yeah, um, I, I'm envious.
2: Yeah, it's I, a I... it's a bit of a squeeze. I don't have room for many more, so it's kind of one in one out now.
0: No, Where we'll are and guys, build yeah. <laughs> I'm moving house soon, and part of the plan won't be this year. We'll be a whole room devoted to floor to ceiling books. So, yeah, his wife is
1: really happy with this plan as well, isn't she? Yeah.
0: my <laughs> wife delighted. told me I could
2: only buy books if I could house them in my office. I, there's no more room for books at home. <laughs> so, uh... It seems to be a common dynamic,
1: isn't it? With, with dare I say, particularly men over yeah. in Egypt and, and the whole book crisis. i can't i can't just keep doing the charity shop yeah my wife is a
2: historian and she's a very successful academic and she doesn't buy books she She went through her whole phd without buying a book or maybe buying two books or something and i somehow can't stop myself so how
1: did you manage that that's that's
0: that's pretty astonishing Online shopping is the problem with books. Yeah, that's the thing. Yeah, and I haven't migrated over to the on the. I, I like the physical, like yeah. the smell and feel of them and all that, that's for sure. So thanks anyhow for coming on, Seb. And we're going to talk about something. I was just saying to Neil, the weather is lovely and sunny here in Ireland for the first day in about the last two months. It's very <laughs> foggy here. <laughs> oh, oh dear, okay, okay. Well, well. hopefully discussing your book might bring a little bit of light your way. It and you're, suddenly, you're certainly shedding some light on a period of history that for a long time has been considered the dark ages and devoid of scientific discovery and I'd mentioned just in the in the intro how Petrarch had coined the term and then you'd you write your book it was uh, Carl Sagan isn't that right in in 1980 kind of popularized it again and that there was literally nothing between the end of the western Roman Empire and 1600 and this is totally untrue so I suppose you you introduced this story using a Northumbrian monk called the very uh, medieval name of John of Westwick. So you might tell us a little bit about this, character.
2: Yeah, so uh, John Westwick, John of Westwick, I I can't really make up my mind. And in a way, that's kind of a medieval story, right, that uh, surnames start to come in in this period. But he was a monk, he was born not far from London, actually born in around a place called St Albans, which is about a a day or two's walk north of London. uh, And he uh, joined the monastery at St Albans there. And as far as we know, uh, because we don't know very much about him, but that's kind of the point of the book in a way, he was a fairly ordinary monk. But at a certain point, he got himself into trouble, we think, probably as happened a lot with the monks of the time because he got in with the local townspeople and the monastery and the townspeople were always kind of having disputes about who got to control the land and who got to mill in the mills and who got to pay who money and so on. Uh, he got into trouble and he got sent up to this monastery called Tynemouth, which is just down the river from Newcastle on the on the north coast of England. And then at a certain point, he got sent off on crusade or, or rather he chose to go on crusade and probably to get away from this monastery up in the north where everything was cold and wet and miserable. And the monks were always complaining that all there was to eat was fish. And uh, and and he went on this bishop's crusade in 1383 where the, well, it wasn't really a crusade. They, they went to Flanders. They went to the Low Countries and they besieged the city of Ghent and, uh, oh, sorry, Ypres. And the whole army got dysentery and retreated uh, in in shame and ignominy. Uh, and then he came back and and we think he was probably in London for a bit. And then he returned to St. Albans. So unlike a lot of monks who had basically a pretty dull life of staying in the monastery all the time, he was quite uh, adventurous. So in that sense, he was unusual. But in other senses, he was a fairly typical monk. And one of the things he did an awful lot of was astronomy. He quite possibly studied in Oxford University, uh, one of, well, it was the first university in England, and it was uh, one of the greatest universities of Europe at the time. Uh, Of course, today it's it's awful and negligible, uh, as I must say, being in Cambridge. But but he probably studied in Oxford, and he did some astronomy, invented an instrument called an equatorium, wrote about other instruments as well, and was generally interested in what was the most cutting-edge science at the time. And so my book is kind of telling a history of science through his life, through his adventures, and so readers could kind of learn what he learned as he went along. And because he wasn't necessarily that exceptional a character, uh, they learn a little bit, we learn a little bit about how people really did science and what people were
0: really interested in in the Middle Ages.
1: Oh,
0: Excellent. Yeah, and, and tell us now, there's Geoffrey uh, Chaucer, was perhaps mistakenly attributed to as being a scientist. What's the story there? So yeah,
2: I started my research with this one manuscript that had been attributed to Chaucer. So Chaucer was, of course, a poet. But one of the things about the Middle Ages is that you don't have specialism in the same way that we do today. And science definitely wasn't seen as being this separate discipline. So it was quite possible to be interested in astronomy, in geometry, in any kind of science you might think of and be a poet and be a philosopher and be a theologian or a priest as long as you had a basic level of education and literacy which of course not everybody had and so chaucer had written a manual for an astronomical instrument a kind of computer of the stars slash clock slash horoscope device called an astrolabe which we can talk more about in a while if you want And she also had written a manual of this that was supposed to be for his 10-year-old son. And historians have a kind of argument about whether it was really for his 10-year-old son, little little Lewis he's called in the book, or whether this is kind of a literary conceit, a sort of metaphor, a sort of are you as smart as a 10-year-old, astrolabes for dummies kind of book. If my son can understand this, then you can too. That's what a lot of people think the idea is. So this guy, Derek Price, who's a historian of science, came along in the 1950s uh, and found this manuscript. And it was written in Middle English, which was the kind of growing language for writing science at the time. And it was dated 1392, which was the year after Chaucer wrote the treatise on the astrolabe. So Price said, well, this is probably by Chaucer, which is a bit of a stretch, because, you know, just because it's written in the same language and written in the following year doesn't mean it's written by the same guy. But, you know, there were all, there were other arguments besides that as well, one of which was that it actually had the name Chaucer in it. And so arguments basically went back and forth for, for about 50 years about where the Chaucer had written this other manual, this other manuscript, which is a description of another instrument, a, a computer for finding the positions of the planets in the sky at any time, past or future. And then this Norwegian scholar came along about 10 years ago, a bit less than 10 years ago, and identified the handwriting in the manuscript as being the handwriting of our man, John Westwick. And that's how I came upon it. And I was actually already studying the manuscript at the time, and I wasn't really asking questions about who had written it. I was more interested in kind of where the ideas came from, but when I saw that it had been written... In the hand of a monk, it made an awful lot of sense, and that's when I thought actually this would be a great idea to write a book that looks at the history of medieval science through the life of this monk.
1: And is that how you found this character, John? Is that is that how you came across him?
2: Yeah. So I mean, his name wasn't wasn't really well known. His name only appears in a couple of sources. One of which is is the history of the of and Albans, the, the Chronicle, written by a guy called Thomas Walsingham, who writes in 1383, a bunch of people basically ran away from the monastery and went on crusade. He's not very positive mm. about them. and uh, And John Westwick is listed there. And there's another... Kind of textbook of astronomy, a guide to a, an instrument that was invented by an abbot of St. Alban, a guy called Richard of Wallingford, who's really famous for inventing a clock, probably the most advanced astronomical clock of its time. And John Westwick wrote a kind of edited version of that, or a new edition of that. So his name appeared in a few places in, in the record, but he wasn't a famous character mm. at all. And I was kind of interested in why it was basically that There's all this stuff going on. There's all this maths going on. There's all this astronomy going on. People inventing instruments all over the place. People using devices to track the motions of the stars and tell horoscopes and cure people based on kind of astral medicine and all kinds of interesting things going on. And most people today don't really know about any of that. And they just assume that everybody was just kind of scratching around in the mud with sticks and doing as they were told by the church. And it's not really like that at all. So that's kind of why I wanted to tell this story.
1: Brilliant. And why why do people have that perception then? Said of of the aptly or inaptly named dark ages. Why why do we have these perception? These these people, as you so well put it, scratching in the mud with sticks. Like why why is that the case?
2: Well, I mean, partly I think it's because we like to have an idea of history making progress, right? A sort of linear view that we're going from zero to today. And today is kind of the peak and the, and, and the apogee, and that's where we're going to get any better. And so it, in a way, it's kind of natural that, that we assume that people in the past were ignorant because we must be clever. So there's a certain level of arrogance to that. There's the specific thing about the period that comes a little bit from the Renaissance, where basically the Renaissance as you sort of alluded to at the beginning, was about recapturing the wisdom of the classical period. And that's why it's called the Renaissance, right? It's a rebirth. And they see themselves very much as trying to rekindle the the world of of scholarship and learning and achievement in all of human endeavour, including the arts as well as the sciences, that was evident from ancient Greece and Rome. And because they're doing that, then basically everything in between is seen as worthless and that's why it's called the middle ages right it's the bit in the middle it's the it's sort of insignificant stuff that comes between the glories of classical greece and rome and and the the kind of rejuvenation of the renaissance so it's sort of assumed that there's there's nothing going on in that period and then the third reason is because of this idea of science versus religion that basically science and religion Are and have always been in kind of implacable conflict, and there's no way that they can ever kind of coexist or work together or anything like that. And that's really a 19th century idea. It actually Mm. comes out of the sort of anti Darwin reaction, really, in the 19th century, and, and was popularized by some scholars in the 19th century, a lot of them in America, actually, that basically said science and religion can't coexist peacefully. But yes, there are definitely episodes in the Middle Ages of the church being kind of narrow-minded or or clamping down on sort of free thinking but mostly that was kind of religious free thinking because of course the church is most interested in what people have to say about God it's not actually that interested in what people have to say about nature and when it is it's supporting it it's the church that sets up universities it's the church that sponsors scholars because they have a very clear motivation for wanting to find out about nature because nature is creation for them nature Mm. is Created by God, and by studying nature, you can get closer to the intentions of God. So you can kind of understand God through creation. So for for religious people in the Middle Ages, science was really a part of theology. Science was a handmaiden, as sometimes described at the time. But today, this idea that we have that science and religion are sort of contradictory and mutually exclusive suggests that if The Middle Ages was a time when religion, as it was, was quite powerful, then Mm. science must have been insignificant and kind of
0: under the boot of the of the church. Yeah, indeed. yeah, it's where it's where obviously just like you described, it was education was in the lap of the religious orders, but they're not in the way that we, we see them. Now, what was occurring to me while you were speaking there, you know, I was going, God, yeah, no history, another thousand years time. What would people thinking of us? Oh, they'll tap in search into some form of Google or other and up will pop a file. Right. But you actually have held in your hands a manuscript from the time correct and doing doing in junior studies like that was the what an amazing experience and and even i'm sure you've come into contact with an astrolabe and I, you mm-hmm. might describe to the listener what that is but it's a beautiful piece of machinery or kit if you'd like to call it what was that like and the care that's needed to inspect those manuscripts yeah i mean
2: I just, I'm incredibly lucky. And, and every time I hold a manuscript, I just can't believe they're letting me do that, right? Like, it's like, what, do, how how do I get to do this? You know, I actually get to hold in my hands these books because of course, everything from the period I study, 13th, 14th century mainly, and, and sometimes a bit earlier, was handwritten. If you wanted a book in the Middle Ages, in the European Middle Ages before the printing press was invented or came to Europe, depending on what you believe, in the middle of the 15th century, Everything, every book was handwritten and it was handwritten broadly on animal skin. So you had to kill your sheep. You had to scrape off all the fat from one side and all the hair from the other side of the skin, uh, obviously skin the sheep as well. You had to stretch the skin out and treat it chemically. So it became soft and stretchy rather than kind of getting hard and, and creaky as it dried out. And then you had to cut it and fold it and stitch it into a booklet and then perhaps ultimately put the booklets together into a book. And then you had to write on the book using ink that you had also made from natural products like oak gall and 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 um, various other things as well, which comes from little eggs laid in the in the buds of oak leaves and twigs by wasps. It's it's incredible this kind of work you had to put into. So I'm touching all of that work when I'm touching a medieval manuscript, and that's just fascinating to me and incredible and sometimes find people's doodles in manuscripts or you find one really quite famous case of an irish manuscript actually but i think it's now in switzerland where a cat has walked across the manuscript and he's uh, got his little
1: heart prints
2: yeah yeah, yeah. i've seen that and 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 that sort of thing and yeah it's it's just absolutely fabulous and these astrolabes as well are just i've got one here taking it at the microphone in the hope that some of that will come up it's like a it's like a brass disk it's like a flat brass disk and it's got moving parts it's got a kind of cut out sort of well it's called a rete so it's supposed to look a bit like a net because rete is the latin for net and it's like a kind of so it's a sort of grid or framework uh, and that has star pointers on it so you've got little pointy bits and each one of which is supposed to represent a star and as you turn it as you turn this uh, this brass disk brass cut-out grid over the circular disc, you, you see the stars moving in the heavens. So it's kind of a model of the heavens on a flat disc and then there's a pointer which you can use and the whole thing is is designed to help you tell the time but it can also help you find what time the sun will rise how long the day will be it can help you find it can help you tell your horoscope as well it can help you find the height of a building and obviously for for muslims in particular because a lot of this technology was developed in the islamic world It would uh, help them know what time to pray because they had to pray at certain times of day related to sunrise and sunset and, and noon and so on. It can help you find the direction of north. So it's kind of a multifunctional device uh, I like to think of it as kind of a medieval smartphone, not just because it has all of these functions which existed in other bigger, more bulky devices, but kind of were put into this little pocket-sized device. So it's it's portable and it's pocket-sized, but it also is kind of fashionable. So an astrolabe is kind of a cool thing to have, and people competed to make more beautiful ones, ones with different functions. Just like today, you want to have the latest smartphone and you want it to be kind of upgraded and better than what your friends have, even though you might not understand exactly how it works or use all of its functions. So that was true as well of astrolabes in the way that people kind of had them as status symbols, but didn't necessarily understand exactly what they did or what they were for. And they're beautiful, Ooh. right? They're, they're, they're really Amazing. Intricate. Like, yeah and,
1: so what year are we talking about that these would have been fashionable? what years how how far back are we going?
2: so i mean the concept of the astrolabe goes back to ancient greece so ptolemy the ancient greek the hellenistic astronomer so he was active in alexandria in about the year 150 ad so so we're talking uh, whatever that is 1900 years ago now and and he devises a lot of the or at least explains a lot of the concepts. And the key concept is something called stereographic projection, which is a very long way of saying flattening a globe of the heavens. So in the same way that a map, a flat map, is a projection of the Earth, and that's why we know that certain bits of the Earth, when you you take a globe and and you kind of make it into a map, certain bits of the Earth will be distorted, so it's really hard to show Antarctica or it's really hard to show Greenland. Uh, you know, Greenland often ends up too big on maps because of the, the problem of, of turning a ball into a flat rectangle. So you have the same problem if you want to turn the heavens, which essentially are circular, are spherical, and people understood them as being such in the Middle Ages. If you want to turn them on, into a flat disk, you need to flatten them in some way. Uh, and Ptolemy worked out a way of doing this that preserved all the angles. That was the key innovation so that you could turn things and they would appear on the astrolabe and then you could look up in the sky and they'd be in the same place. The key point is you don't need to know how far away they are because essentially everything in the sky is infinitely far away. So uh, so people are only looking at angles. and And so that's what Ptolemy comes up with. There's no instruments from his period that survive. So we don't know whether he ever made this thing whose principles he explained but there were people in the first millennium making these things and it's really around about the year 1000 or the 100 the years before the millennium that these things really take off first of all in the islamic world and you get makers in in north africa and in what you know is today iraq and and that area making these things they come into europe through spain and and, uh, southern italy where there's contact between uh, christian scholars and, and muslims around about the year 1000 either side of the year 1000 there's certain monasteries where they're clearly picking up on these ideas and there's people traveling to spain in order to learn arabic and and try and learn from arabic speaking scholars and then they really take off in europe in the kind of 11th 12th 13th centuries and they have their kind of peak in europe really around about 1500, when kind of navigation becomes super fashionable. So they become used often in kind of very stripped down versions for navigation. Uh, and then they kind of slightly go out of fashion because clocks come in and, and people are more interested in sort of more complex devices, uh, and navigational, very strictly navigational devices. But then they carry on being popular in the Islamic world, for hundreds of years later because they're so useful for knowing what time is the right time to pray and in some cases they can be used to help you find the direction of mecca because of course muslims have to face mecca when they pray so right into the 19th century people were were making these things mm-hmm. uh, of course nowadays if you're a muslim and you, you want to face mecca when you pray you've got an app on your phone that will do that but until then the astrolabe is the thing to
1: use can I be able to switch here uh, maybe this is different for you here i've
0: never even heard of this before I've never heard of these. Uh, uh, you were obviously you you were turned off in uh, introvert history, obviously. That Jesus is that is that where it all went from? You... Yeah, you would you would have learned that by the, around the age of fifteen. What <laughs> is that right? Really? Yeah, oh my yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, I
1: remember now. I was suspended that day. Yeah. I'm not
2: sure I ever learned about them at school, to be honest. I don't remember the first time I heard about astrolabes. But if you ever saw or read that book, His Dark Materials or or Northern Lights. Philip
0: Pullman.
2: Yeah, Philip Pullman. The alethiometer, this kind of really mysterious thing, I think that's heavily based on astrolabes. And it's probably not coincidental. Philip Pullman lives in Oxford, and and the largest collection of astrolabes in the world is in Oxford. So I'd be immensely surprised if it if it was coincidental.
1: And could I just ask you a very simple question, which expose my ignorance here? Do they actually work? Yeah, basically.
2: Huh? Yeah, they okay. do. And the reason is because what I said, that we don't care about distance. So a lot of people say, well, how is it possible that they work since people in the Middle Ages, when these things were made, believed that the Earth, Mm. hold on, I've got it the wrong way around. The sun goes around the Earth, and we think that the Earth goes around the sun. How is it possible these things that are based on a geocentric cosmos work? And the answer is because it's all about angles. And so it doesn't actually matter. It's relative angle. Who goes around what is completely irrelevant. That's why the system worked so well. We're not interested in distances. Actually, people could estimate the relative distances of the sun and the moon reasonably well based on essentially what they worked out as being the size of these things and the fact that the moon almost exactly covers the sun in an eclipse and so on Uh, they they did have a rough estimate of the relative distances of the of the sun and the moon but generally they weren't that interested in those things they were interested in in angles and if you want to tell the time you can absolutely do so you're using an astrolabe The, the the trick is to do it to do it right basically and the one of the main sources of inaccuracy is using an astrolabe for the wrong place so mostly they are calibrated for a particular latitude a particular distance from the equator north or south and if you go too far north or too far south then your lines will be wrong and then you you get massive sources of of error so if there's and there's a certain amount of user error involved as well but you can certainly tell the time with them pretty accurately today of course today we have time zones and it's the same time where you guys are in in island right and same time here and obviously, you're quite a long way west of me, so you have to take all that into account. But if you do that, then yes, you can tell the time with them quite accurately. Okay, listen, I'm sold.
1: I want one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's where, like, the most <laughs> economical way of telling where, time. where, can I get one? Where can <laughs> I get one just like the one you have there? I mean, can, can you buy them? Well, the ones
2: I have that, that you can see are um, are cheap, but well, cheap. They're not that cheap. Modern replicas, like you can get a modern replica for the internet for like a hundred pounds or something like oh, that. Is, that's, that's my Christmas, Christmas present sort. There we <laughs> are, <laughs> absolutely. There's actually a guy in Ukraine that I bought one off who sells them on Etsy and uh, he's still making them amazingly. And he, even though he's, he's in the army at the moment, putting sandbags over everything in Kiev. I mean, he's an incredible guy and he and he runs a shop on, on Etsy. I'll do him some free advertising here. It's called Master Terebrus. Brilliant. And, um, and you can buy these things off him and it's so such good value i mean there's another one that you can't see that i've got within reach here that he made for oh me. Wow. Um, and um, and again you know yes it was it it's not the sort of thing that it's useful for me because because it's kind of my job and i can justify splashing out pounds <laughs> or two, something like that but yeah uh, you know, if you I'm, don't know what to get whatever you just <laughs> buy for christmas for the person who has everything
1: <laughs> that's certainly not me Beautiful stuff, just for the listeners there, Seb is holding up some really intricate instruments that you can buy from that chap when he's not busy building sandbags in, in Ukraine. Bless him. <laughs> just, just you mentioned we tipped off there as well about the Islamic world, Seb. So is our understanding correct that while we were all to dip back to your great analogy there, dipping around in the wood with sticks, that in the Arab world they were these enlightened people that were way ahead of us in Europe that were writing books and were great students and great scholars is that all entirely true and that that meanwhile we were in 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 the really, until they came along and enlightened us is that correct
2: yeah I mean classic historians answer it's a bit more complicated than that but it's quite hard to argue with the with the essence of that the big question is first of all well did the Roman Empire ever collapse and if the Roman Empire collapsed Uh, or declined or fell than what was left after it. So one thing, important thing to remember is that a lot of the learning of the Roman Empire carried on in... Byzantium, Constantinople, uh, in what became known, at least to Western scholars, as the Eastern Roman Empire. And and in that sense, the Roman Empire never dies, right? And a large part of it even carries on in, in Italy and in places like Ravenna and so on. There's a great recent book by Judith Heron about Ravenna and, and, and a bit which shows all this. But to the extent that clearly some of the glories of the Roman Empire as experienced in places like France and and um, and Britain and, and uh, Italy and Spain were in decline and yes there was still learning and you get people like Bede and actually great scholarship in Ireland as well of course which um, has a big influence above all on the north of England but really on England as a whole and and that mustn't be completely ignored so you mustn't imagine that nothing is going on at all in in Europe from 500 to 1,000 or 1,100, 1,200. But nonetheless, in that period, if you want to be at the height of scholarship, particularly, of course, after 700, 800, when when Islamic learning really takes off, you go to Baghdad or you go to Isfahan, these kinds of places, right? Um, What's now Iraq or or Iran. Mm -hmm. And you learn from scholars there. And above all, in the Abbasid Caliphate in the 9th century, 8th, 9th century, you've got essentially caliphs collecting libraries, you've got whole teams of international scholars, not all of them Muslim, some of them Christian or Jewish as well, uh, translating furiously works from Greek and from Indian languages and uh, and amassing enormous quantities of learning. That is really the centre of scholarship in Eurasia or certainly anywhere west of China in this period. And then the other part of the story that slightly needs a bit of correcting is the old story that basically those Arabic scholars just preserved the learning of ancient Greece and kind of handed it over to Europeans to run with in the Renaissance. Because of course, there's huge amounts of new work that is done in the Islamic world, both in terms of developing ancient Greek ideas and coming up with stuff from scratch. And Europeans embrace that and and um, take advantage of that too. And so then if you kind of keep that in mind, the old story that basically learning from the Islamic world in, in what's sometimes called the 12th century Renaissance is really crucial to the later more famous Renaissance of the sort of 15th and 16th centuries. So that part is, is I think, still kind of workable model for how Europe came came to
0: be so prominent in science. Mm, mm. And, and in writing the book did you have to cast off some of your scholarly shackles and a bit like an ancient historian because in dealing with scraps of information because obviously john westwick was the most important character on the planet so some of the information would have been quite scant so you, you had to become somewhat of an author in trying to piece it all together right
2: Yeah, I mean, because what I wanted to do was get away from this story that basically the history of science is this parade of a few great men where you get these guys who are like ahead of their time and each one Mm. sort of picks up the baton from the guy before him and takes a few giant strides forward and then passes it to the next guy. And it is always guys in these stories, you know, Galileo or Copernicus Mm. or Kepler, whoever it might be. And I kind of wanted to show how science was done by Minor players, people who you don't really have to have heard of, but the whole point is it's a team effort. And as you say, we don't know a huge amount about this guy, John Westwick. So I had to not be imaginative exactly, but I had to essentially fill in the gaps of what we know about him with what was typical of a monk at the time. And I tried to be pretty clear about that of kind of what he would have been doing or. What he most likely did in this period. But there are periods of like 10 years when we know nothing about what this guy was doing. And we sort of have to assume that he was staying more or less in one place, and that he was doing what most monks were doing at that time. But it may be that, you know, some document comes to light that shows that I'm completely wrong, and he was hundreds of miles away for, for years at a time. And if that's so, then I'll be overjoyed, right? Because then we just find out more and, and the process of history moves on. But I think historians always, even they're just writing for other academics, have to fill in some gaps a little bit here and there because particularly for the period that I work on, the documentary evidence is incomplete and you can't get away from that.
0: Yeah, no, it's very well written though. I, I, that was the point. <laughs> I'll be bringing <laughs> it up <laughs> It's a nice, yeah, It's a good story that, that, that you do tell. I mean, he had um, a great
2: life. He had a great life. He was a very interesting guy.
0: Well, he came up for was it him then that came up with the novel Cures for uh, Dysentery?
2: Uh, no, that's, a, that's I, I had to fill that in with another text. So I mean, okay. the, that's Bernard of Gordon, who sounds very okay. Scottish, but he's actually French. And yeah, he had these, this manual that that tells you all these different cures of dysentery. Uh, and then there's something called the this Franciscan manual called the, the slate of medicine, tabula medicinae, which is kind of a, I call it a kind of Wikipedia style cure, a sort of book of cures that people added to over the years with what worked. And yeah, it's it's fascinating what people came up with to cure these things. I
1: wonder about this
2: dude. Is it Elmir? The guy who... Um... Oh, El- of Malmesbury. Yeah, the guy who tries to uh, tries to fly, basically. <laughs> yeah, that's I'll a listen. funny one. I had to, I had to include that. Readers love that. Yeah, that's this, great. this guy who basically decides he's going to try out these wings and see if he can fly like a bird. I mean, it, it shows up in the record because it's... A cautionary tale right It's don't do this don't be so foolish and in fact elmer himself supposedly was saying to people years later look i was a fool i tried to fly off the abbey tower and i broke both my legs um, oh he survived but, he, he survived, he, he, he survived.
0: Yes. okay yes. so technically he did fly then
2: yeah, I mean, <laughs> glided. Maybe he <laughs> glided. I think he went like. I think the source says he went like two hundred yards. Although, of course, I don't imagine this was measured. I don't think anyone had a measuring stick at the time. It was like, oh, what's doing? I better, I better go and measure that. So, so I'm sure it was just an estimate. But yeah, he he supposedly attached two wings to himself, kind of imitating Daedalus, right, in the famous yes. story of yes. Daedalus and Icarus. And that's what he was trying to do to see how far he could fly. And he broke both his legs, but he did survive. So he was available in later years to tell people what he's done. Don't do what he just did.
1: (laughs) It's a brilliant story. It's contained, folks, in a mass of amazing stories that you've unearthed there, said. And what do you think, Derek? it's on
0: your Christmas card uh, is this one? Yeah, no, that, that, absolutely, absolutely, and and I think you you also managed to to tell how uh, well what the nightlife was like in the monasteries. They had a pretty good nightlife, didn't they?
2: Oh, really? That's <laughs> a bit of
0: sin there. Sometimes too good,
2: yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, really? And in the universities <laughs> as well, right? So, right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so he he studied probably in Oxford, and the students had every bit as exciting lives as as students do today. So. Was good to okay. know, good to know. Yeah, it is.
1: Or were they not all just sort of just quietly amongst themselves, being very studious and getting up early in the morning?
2: Well, they should have been, shouldn't they? They should have been. Just like students today, shouldn't they? Indeed. Be. I always tell them. But no, some, funnily enough, the, the thing is that the monasteries or, or the abbots, the, the leadership of monasteries, were really worried when the universities were set up that if they sent their young monks to cities where universities were located, they would be corrupted by all of the things that you find in cities and they were absolutely right and you get all these letters written back about monks reporting how the monks have spent all of their money gambling or hunting or feasting and drinking and what they do is they run out of money And because they don't have any money and they need more food and they need to gamble some more or whatever it is, they sell the books they brought with them because (laughs) books are incredibly valuable in the period. They are real hard currency. So they sell their books in order to drink more and gamble more. And then the monasteries are like, well, we sent them with these books. How are we going to get more books? And of course, it's very hard to get more books because they they cost a huge amount of money or they take time to copy. Uh, So this is a major worry for the monasteries, but they can't seem to stop it.
1: Oh, I like the sound of those monks. I do. They sound like they were having the crack, as we say here yeah. in Ireland. Yeah, <laughs> yeah
2: absolutely
0: well listen you've given us a, oh, yeah, a lovely a lovely tale of thirteenth, uh, or sorry uh, 14th century England and scientific knowledge and we do thank you for coming on the Hipstorians and spreading the light to you're really enjoying that there, Derek, I really yeah. am yeah I'm <laughs> going to work hard you <laughs> working
1: you've got to work, working yeah. Up. Yeah. You <laughs> get <the> rest it <laughs> <of that.
0: laughs>
1: no, thank you so much yeah. um, the book is the light ages folks and as the garden said banishing the idea of the dark ages and uh, does it so well these really interesting and human stories as well and that's the, that's the art that's the, the art of capturing history isn't it Derek is to tell a story yeah. that's that, that's a bit of fun as well we're not all dusty monks in our own little cells working away like that's what we're trying to do here at the historians. and thanks to people like Seb that helped us do that okay folks listen thanks very much again to Seb and uh, we'll wrap it up here and yeah thank you Seb thank
0: you thanks yeah. very much Bye-bye. for having me Yeah, right chap.
1: Brilliant. I love that. Like that's that's what I love is talking to people like Seb who obviously know their stuff. They put a lot of effort and a lot of study into these subjects and a lot of research and then tell it with such little bit of humor
0: and a little bit of light to use (laughs) your words. He made a great point, though, as well. Yeah. And, that, like, I suppose, in, in the way I uh, touch humility needed, mm-hmm. if somebody comes out and disproves something that he says by finding a new manuscript, well, great Mm -hmm. because that's the point that's what he sees as the point of going on these historical investigations Mm -hmm. is for somebody else to come along and discover more history because if you don't put it out there there's nothing to disprove so this is how the whole argument is for that our historical knowledge is is, is forwarded and passed on down through generations and that's the whole thing of history you go back and read history books on various topics a hundred years ago it's Mm -hmm. all changed because we've discovered more and that's the beauty of history it does change it's not all hard facts there's that's that, exactly uh, right, and
1: you know, it, it's starting to learn that now. Just because it is enclosed in two covers in a book that was written a 1, thousand, a hundred, or ten, or ten days ago, doesn't mean that the, the that's the deal sealed that that's it. Like it's open to interpretation then, as in, in future years, and the
0: stories just kept getting retold then. Yeah, that's it. That's it. So that's it. Well, another another good episode, Neil. Yeah, enjoyed that one. Yeah. Yeah, we have a busy week ahead, anyhow. So, uh, yes, well, yeah, wish say, we'll wish you the best of luck with that. And thank you very much to the listeners. Uh, do please like and subscribe, as they say. And if you can spare a moment, please do write a review. It does help us try, try and get on the charts. Mm. And we do really want to keep this thing going as long as we can. And it does need support. It needs listeners just saying, giving us a thumbs up and, yeah, that they like what we're doing.
1: Yeah, you can 100%, you can find us on Acast, we're on there on Apple as well, but we're very probably active on, on Twitter, at
0: Historians. And YouTube. All right. right. <laughs> no, YouTube. And our TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> Take care. All right, see you, buddy. Bye. Thanks for Goodbye.